The following is a quarantine recording presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on and what we hating on, what we might be and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, how the end of Daylight Savings Time has got me fucked up. <laughs> we cover it all. We are recording from Oakland, California, the center of the known universe, where we are dealing with Rona and Reconstruction. It's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we're going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99 because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. Our guest this week is the co-founder and executive director of the African-American Policy Forum. She's the host of the podcast Intersectionality Matters and a professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law School. That's right. I said and, not or. And. <laughs> she is popularly known for her development of the terms intersectionality, of critical race theory, and the Say Her Name campaign. And she is a leading authority on civil rights, Black feminist legal theory, race, racism, and the law. Get ready, because today... I am so grateful to be talking to the one and the only Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. Hey! Hey, Alicia! What's up? I'm so happy to see you. You have no idea. So I got to ask you, I got to ask you because I'd be asking everybody because, you know, um, contrary to popular opinion, we are still in a pandemic, child. Yeah! (laughs) And we are now again, on stay-at-home orders. So I got to ask you, what has your quarantine life been like? And have you developed any unique habits live and direct for Miss Rona? Mm, okay. So I have reacquainted myself with things that I used to do before I was getting on a plane every week. Oh, yes. Oh, so yes. I had a garden that uh, I love, 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 love until I just didn't have time to take care of it. Mm, So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really got sort of back into it. Number one, you know, in the early part of the pandemic, there was like, are we ever going to go to the store again? Right. (laughs) right? And are we going to ever eat anything that's not in a can or out of the freezer? So I said, Mm. no, I actually do know how to grow my own food. So I kind of got back into it. And then 
it just became another arena in which the thoughts that I usually have in the social world just got transplanted to my plants. That's like, amazing. So I'm going to put this plant over here in the sun and in this soil mix and this plant over here. And they came from like the same batch. And look at that. This one is like just showing out. And this poor little one over here <laughs> is just having a hard time. And of course, I have to theorize it, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, what, <laughs> what are the dynamics yes. to that? I was like, you know what? You cannot turn this stuff off. It's just like. I'm there. so here for this. You have a critical race garden. And that is amazing. <laughs> Amazing. That is the best thing I have heard all week long. That is so true. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, as I was preparing for this show, I was like, this must be full circle for you in so many ways. I mean, you were on Anita Hill's legal team. Mm-hmm. And this was right around the time, um, as I understand it, that you coined the term intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Give us the scoop. I mean, is there any relationship or connection around the coining of this term, right? Because I'm thinking back to those hearings and how people just couldn't get it on so many levels, so many. (laughs) But also the reckonings this year have been jarring, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Joe Biden is now the president-elect of the United States. Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court and doing what Brother Clarence be doing, which is a whole lot of nothing. Talk to me about how you're faring right now as somebody who (laughs) really has seen all this shit come right back to where it began. How are you faring right now in this moment of reckonings and full circles? Yeah, well, let me add just one other layer to it. Oh, come on. it, there, there are elements of this moment that make me worried that not only are we looking at elements from the 90s, but, you know, in, in the last couple of years of the Obama administration, one of the big issues was where Black women and girls fit within the racial justice framework that was offered by the Obama administration. So our whole Why We Can't Wait campaign sort of came out of that moment of saying, uh, really, Uh, we're going to really leave, you know, us out of it. So it's sort of a lot of stuff that is circulating around kind of like a lazy Susan. I'm sort of hoping that we don't see some of the same stuff, but, you know, one one can't be so sure. So, you know, when, when when I, you know, think about where we are now relative to the 90s, What was most immediately sort of the result of the Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill thing was the formation of the African-American Policy Forum. Come on. It was actually there. So my co-founder, Luke Harris, I met Luke when the day that Clarence Thomas came into the hearings and denounced the testimony of Anita Hill, Mm. Black woman as a high-tech lynching, we went, oh, hell to the no. What? This this man who has spent, you know, his his entire career criticizing racial justice advocates, uh, saying civil rights 
leaders just were bitchers and whiners. That's all they did. You know, never saw a racial justice narrative that he was willing to affirm. Suddenly he reaches back to history and gets the bloody rope and puts it around his head and said, this is what Anita was doing. It was just so obviously a ploy to gather Black people around him. And actually, I thought, well, that's not going to work. People know that, A, you wouldn't be lynched on the say-so of a Black woman. And two, you don't even think that that history has anything to do with anything right now. So everyone sees what it's about. Well, we put out a call. Uh, Brothers come to Washington and stand with us, you know, and, and tell the truth about what's happening. So we thought there'd be hordes of people coming. Next morning, I get a knock on, on my hotel door, and there's Luke and another brother, Carlton Long. He said, we heard you guys are looking for Black men. We've come to join the Black men group. We said, you are the Black men. <laughs> facts on facts on facts. I love it. And, and, you know, there were so many demands to hear from Black men on that. So, you know, they did the rounds of all the networks and everything, basically, you know, telling the truth that we knew that that this was not a high tech lynching. This was a black woman telling her story. There were even people who were saying sexual harassment is not something that black women care about. Right? Oh, wow. As though sexual harassment was not a condition of life since we arrived on these shores. Right. So it was so clear that all the stories about how black women experienced white supremacy, how we experienced being institutionally raped and abused for the purposes of producing capital and human beings. All of that stuff just wasn't part of our understanding of what racism looked like. So it divided the community between people who were pro-woman and people who were pro-Black, right? Mm -hmm. And through that division, we got a Supreme Court justice who has gutted the Voting Rights Act, who has overturned campaign finance reform, who has uh, allowed the police undue discretion to do pretty much anything they want. That whole racial justice agenda that, you know, he tanked, he was able to do it because our notion of identity politics didn't have a critique of patriarchy, sexism, misogynoir, anything else that wasn't about cisgender Black men at the center of it. So we were sitting across from um, the Capitol when he was confirmed, and we said to each other, this is going to change the future of our lives. This, Mm. This confirmation is changing the future of the Republic, and it will change the future of our lives. Because we saw... Um, how much we lost by not having an intersectional understanding of our interests. That's right. So that's when we decided, you know what, we're, we were going to work together. We're going to build out the, the capacity to talk about gender issues within traditional frameworks. And of course, that ended up building out into gender, sexuality, gender identity, then class, and then immigrant status. So that was the nucleus that built out, and eventually African American Policy Forum came out of that. That and the Million Man March. (laughs) (laughs) Kim, you can't just drop stuff like that and leave it. Well, you know, you know, you know that if you have a politics that is partial it often does more than that. It reinforces baselines, politics, privileges 
that create negative possibilities and outcomes and create privileges inside of our community. Whose narrative counts the most? Whose leadership is recognized and whose isn't? You know something about that. All of that stuff, you know, you could trace back to these moments of of the Million Man March and Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. And and I I think, you know, the narrative that anti-Black racism begins and ends with what happens to a subset of us is part of the problem that's led us to this moment. So when you say how I'm dealing with this moment right now, you know, I'm I'm glad that we live to fight another day because we were at the edge. That's real. We were at the edge. As you were talking, I was reflecting about how Black women like yourself, who organized us to amplify our voices, um, you did so mm-hmm. with a crew of folks who took out a full page ad in the New York Times, uh, 1600 Black women, right, in support of Anita Hill. You know, myself and Mina got to work with you this past year, actually. God, time. <laughs> what is time? What is time? What is, it? What is, it? <laughs> what is time? Like uh, sand this- in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> this past year around the Kavanaugh hearings and organized a similar tactic called 1600 Men. And what I'm reflecting on is how when we have the courage to tell the uncomfortable truth, we are often told we're, we're outcast, right? We're told that we are crazy, that we are being, that we're exaggerating, right? We're, we're saying we're being hysterical, right? And mm-hmm. these are words that are reserved for women. And they are particularly words that get reserved for Black women. And I'm old enough and young enough to remember the same with BLM. And here we are seven years later. And I can remember talking to people about BLM and there being this glaze that went over people's eyes, right? This Mm -hmm. glaze, right? Where it was like, how can you tell me that we don't live in a post-racial society? Now, of course, everybody's like, we don't live in a post-racial society. I'm like, oh my God, we talked about this. What is that like for you? I mean, it's different for you, I imagine. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But when you see the inauguration of Joe Biden, who, you know, it took several years to acknowledge his wrongdoing (laughs) in his approach with Anita Hill. Mm -hmm. What's it like to look back and look forward at the same time and be like, wow, this man is now the president of the United States? Do you have any inkling that perhaps his stance on these questions has shifted? What can we expect kind of moving forward um, out of out of Joe Biden and his administration? Well, you know, I, I actually talked to Anita Hill about this mm. in uh, one of our conversations for Intersectionality Matters. And, you know, number one, he never really apologized, That's right? Nice. It's, nice. it's a little bit more like, you know, when people say, I'm sorry, you feel that way. I'm sorry if you were impacted by this. I'm sorry if <laughs> it's kind of like mm, a drive by, you know, yeah. apology. Yeah. yeah. What it makes you wonder is, do you understand what it was that made you do that? I mean, I'm big for apologies. Any Anybody knows, 
you know, if I'm mad about something, you apologize. I want to say, okay, now what are you apologizing for precisely? Because I want to know whether I can expect this thing to happen again or not. I just want to get, do you get what, where, where you went in a different direction? And so, you know, the upshot is I just don't think I fully know. I don't know if, if there's a sense that actually we didn't understand the dynamics of sexual harassment. We didn't fully understand, you know, that without your having someone on the panel who, were, who was defending you, you both were being prosecuted, you know, by the Republicans and you were left out to hang and dry. Mm-hmm. We'll never do that again because we understand sexual harassment. And if that's the, if that's the story, there was his subsequent history of being part of the Violence Against Women Act. And, you know, um, many feminists and elected people like Barbara Boxer, who was like, he's a great champion. If it was, if it was more of a, we're just one of the, you know, back slapping kind of the men, you know, kind of doing their thing. And that's what I observed, actually. Like when we were there, I was really surprised about how well the Democrats and the Republicans got. I mean, we were like back behind the the thing and, you know, they're like really chummy. And I was like, wait, you guys are out here tearing apart this black woman. Mm -hmm. And, And Ted Kennedy and Joe Biden are smiling and, you know, uh, with Arlen Specter and, and all these people, we, I, I thought, come on, you're on our side, you should fight. And, you know, the, the, the insiders in Washington pulled me aside and said, look, you have to understand, you know, this is a club, right? They, they share more in common with each other, you know, than they do with the respective people they represent. Now, that was the politics of the 90s, Right. I think things are perhaps a little different now in the sense that there's far more contestation, you know, between them. And so my question would be, are we going to get like a real fighter for all of the things that they have, the Republicans have destroyed? You know, so are we going to get that? I'm going to go in and I'm really going to fight hard to go to restore and then do better. Or are we going to get more of the sort of, I think I can negotiate a deal. And, you know, when I hear negotiate a deal and we're on the small end of the stick, I start getting a little worried. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Let me switch gears and talk a little bit about Toupe Fiasco. Um, Toupe Fiasco, for those of you who do not know who I am talking about, this is a endearing nickname that was coined, I think at least it was coined by my sister Leslie Mack, and it is used to describe our president. So this year, Toupe Fiasco waged a full-fledged assault on critical race studies. He attacked and dismantled the need or the use for, let me say the use for, diversity training for federal employees. He has vigorously attacked the 1619 Project. And he just in general continues to be the racist in chief and then does that thing that racists do, which they'd be like, I don't have a racist bone in my body. (laughs) And then it's inevitably followed by how many black people they know, which is how you know they're racist because they only they can actually count how many black people they have in their lives. 
you understand me? And there's a quota. So it ain't never going to get expanded. They're like, look, I had two black people that I know. Right. So I got, look, Kim, you are one of the pillars, if not the pillar of critical race theory. And I just, I need to understand your perspective on this too. I mean, what do our listeners need to know about this? Because I think people are getting this in bits and pieces, right? Like you see this, you know, federal order to stop doing diversity training. People are like, nobody's going to do that, but people are doing it. They are. Um, you they see, are. you know, people attacking 1619 and you're like, oh, this is just a group of like disgruntled people. But no, it was actually a full-fledged and is a strategic attack. So why are these attacks happening? Why with all the things that we have to deal with, pandemic, economic collapse, climate change, like why would we turn our attention to critical race studies? And why does this matter? Why should people care about this? Yeah, you go you go after the idea, you kill the movement, right? Mm-hmm. So um, let's let's think about why in slavery they didn't want us to read. They wanted us to remain illiterate. They didn't want us to fully understand and imagine an alternative possibility. And so what they're doing right now is basically trying to erase the possibility of actually looking at our social order and finding it deficient and convincing other people that it is deficient and out of that deficiency, creating alternative ways of, you know, just being alternative ways of of running the government, alternative ways of running businesses, alternative ways of educating people. Um, This is what I sometimes call the kill shot, right? Mm -hmm. If you can get inside the idea um, that there is social injustice, then you can repress the uprising and the reckoning that we've all been experiencing, you know, since May. Um, So this is a tremendous white lash. Um, And and one of the reasons, frankly, that it's effective is that it goes after ideas that people are actually living, but they might not use those terms to describe it. So that when the attack comes, people don't see that what's being attacked is, you know, the fact that they know that, for example, being a Black woman, caregiver, you know, you are among the most economically marginalized and you know it's because you're a Black woman. That's intersectionality. They're attacking intersectionality. They're saying you can't use uh, these ideas in not just training at the federal level, but it's reached even to social justice organizations that have uh, federal dollars. They have federal contracts. So the Urban League cannot use the term structural racism intersectionality, implicit bias, white privilege, you know, in the work that they do with their employees. The National Fair Housing uh, Network cannot use these concepts to actually identify what the source of so much housing inequality and insecurity actually is. So if you if you take away the ability to articulate any of these ideas, then you've effectively done the work necessary to tap down what they consider to be a threat of the social order. And let me say, you know, when the idea is that, well, who's going to do this? Two weeks ago, Stanford University Mm. issued a mandate saying that 
what's no longer permitted to be said is something like there is structural racism at Stanford. Just wrap your head around that for a minute. Stanford University, the so-called liberal Mm -hmm. gem of the West, was so anxious to perform in the way that Trump wanted them to, that they were willing to issue an order that effectively meant that work that was being produced at Stanford, some of the leading thinkers in implicit bias in critical race theory, are there at Stanford. They're basically saying that this work cannot be used or articulated in their actual training of their uh, employees. It is amazing. So what we're hoping for is that the Biden-Harris administration rescinds this order on day one. That That's what our hope is. That's what our Truth Be Told campaign is all about. But beyond that, Alicia, what we want them to do is repair the damage because, mm-hmm. you know, our studies have shown that oh, we, we've gotten 300 and counting claims of trainings that have been canceled, trainings on racial health disparities in the middle of COVID canceled, mm-hmm. talks canceled. Projects canceled, celebrations canceled. So we want to we want to quantify that and and seek repair, but also not go back to where we were, where it's optional whether we do these kind of trainings to really be about equal opportunity. You need to know what makes opportunity unequal. You Come can't on. do one without the other. So that's got to be fundamental as what a responsible equal opportunity employee employer does. And that's what we hope the Biden administration puts in play. OK, so three things. Number one, sign me up. <laughs> I'm serious as a heart attack and I'm going to follow up with you after this. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I, I got I, yeah, I got some ideas. Yeah. Um, number two, tell the people who are listening where they can sign up to be a part of this campaign. They can go to www.aapf.org forward slash truth be told. Uh, That's AAPF for African-American Policy Forum. So A, you can sign uh, our statement. B, you can get our report that tells people what this executive order has done, why this is a repeat of all of the efforts in the past to repress social justice advocacy all the way back. You know, it used to be the case that if you advocated against slavery, you could be arrested um, and charged with sedition, right? So Mm -hmm. this is not new. It includes COINTELPRO. It includes Black identity extremism. I mean, the the reality is, you know, you know, you know, social justice advocacy is punished and, 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 and can be criminalized. So we need to understand this is part of a long arc of history, historic repression. So you can find out information there and, and join our effort. I mean, I think the, the new administration needs to hear from us. They need to know, yes, we put you in there and we're not going to go away. We're not going to do like what we did last time where we, okay, y'all got this. We put you in there and now we're going to advocate and demand that you do the unraveling that needs to be done and then some. So we're in a better position to fight for our own uh, welfare and our rights. So literally these people have instituted a gag rule. (laughs) Call it, I, yeah, just, the social just, equity gag rule. It is a gag a rule. 
This is a damn mess. Okay. And people don't know it. No, people don't know it, but we go, we going to change that because now yeah. I'm all hyped up. My blood pressure high, <laughs> my temperature rising. You know, I'm I'm all in my feelings about all of this because it mm. wasn't great to begin with. See, I'm going right. backwards. When we take it, we had to push and fight and claw and scrape just to get to this place where you're right. It is optional. And if you feel like it and maybe sort of kind of, and then we get the watered down version don't get me started on DEI. Anyways, let me go to another topic. Well, we let, let me throw people. one last thing in just for your folks to, to hear about, because this just came across my desk uh, last uh, couple days ago. The Southern Baptist Convention issued an, uh, a statement last week saying that the five or six main seminaries will no longer, as though they really did, teach critical race theory and intersectionality because it's not biblically based. Now, um, see. Now, see, so we can go somewhere, but I just want to, you know, let your let your listeners know that they are coming uh, at these ideas from all sides. I mean, by that measure, heck, Martin Luther King, you know, <laughs> wouldn't be wouldn't be taught because he, you know, he's one of the original critical race theorists. He knew that we needed to do more than just ignore race. He went to Washington, D.C. to demand a promissory note to repair American society. Critical race theory is about showing people where the repairs need to happen. So basically saying that we're un-American is to say that what is un-American is the idea of realizing the 13th and 14th Amendment. That That's un-American, according to them. Okay, well, if that's the way they want to handle it, I'm saying critical race theory, intersectionality, all of these are ideas that are meant to make real the promise of full citizenship. So if you're saying we're un-American, then what you're saying is American is the denial of that full citizenship. So if you want to go, if you want to make that argument, you make it. Come on. I, I think I have the higher ground on this one. Then let me just, I got to do this. I got to do it. Because, you know, Kim, I feel ways when people, number one, don't credit your work. That should get on my nerves. Number two, don't put some respect on your name, okay? <laughs> and number three, get the shit wrong. Okay, so I have a pet peeve, and my pet peeve is that words mean things, and people often don't take the time to understand what words mean before they use them and use them wrong, and then that messes up everybody. So, <laughs> And then people come after you for the wrong way that the word Correct. got used. You Correct, because you're mm -hmm. like, you know, I never said that, and that's not what it meant, and... I started the shit, so let me just break it down for you. So, okay, I was on my own tea. But so, okay, look, I actually heard a scholar say that intersectionality was not for white women. And I popped a blood vessel in my eye because I was like, you have not read intersectionality theory. And if you have, you were looking at the cliff notes. You was getting the um, Facebook version. <laughs> you wasn't actually reading. So can we just address this? Can we talk about this? Because everybody attaches intersectionality to like diversity and representation, which is annoying AF, 
Or it's like, that's a black thing. So then people throw it in their sentences with you, especially if they're not black, to show you how down they are. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. Oh, we have an intersectional. I'm like, no, you don't. Stop using that. So is intersectionality for white women? Can we close this damn debate, please? So there's so many things. Okay, so first of all, you know what, what I sometimes remember, and I might be dating myself, but I grew up, watching the Flintstones. Okay. (laughs) And you remember their appliances were prehistoric animals. That's right. And they would tell them what they would do and what what they they would not do. They're like, you know, I don't do windows or I don't do this. (laughs) And so they're negotiating with their tools Mm -hmm. to, for them to tell them what they do. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, you know, when people talk about when they anthropomorphize, you know, intersectionality like that, it's like they're turning them into things that decide what they do, what they don't do. Intersectionality is a tool that you use to analyze converging dynamics of power mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, and privilege, right? So, and, and one of the things I always say is I don't demand anybody do inter- if, if intersectionality, it doesn't float your boat. Don't use it. I ain't okay. asking you to. <laughs> This is not my agenda. Um, so I think, number one, there, there's the belief that because it came out of Black women's experience, that it is just about Black women and only Black women can use it. Now, I do have to say, I do understand sisters who who are into intersectionality and they look up and everybody using it is somebody else and they want to elbow them out of it. Mm-hmm. So if you travel and follow intersectionality, you know, around the world, particularly if you go to Europe, there are people there who love the framework, but they don't really like the black bodies that come along with it. <laughs> and so they, they they try to make theoretical moves to say, well, you know, we're not really caught up uh, with this race thing like, you know, the black bodies in the U.S. Um, our intersections are gender and class or something, you know, that kind of thing. And you got to talk to racialized women in Europe to hear them say, yeah, that's the move they make. Right. But that's because they're denying the realities that map onto race over here. So I, I think sometimes, you know, it's for us is a response. It's like when the idea is being gentrified or the neighborhood is being gentrified, like, like it's Harlem for black people. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Is it only for black people? No. But if y'all show up and take over, then, yeah, there are going to be some people who say, get out. <laughs> um, even even though, you know, it, it's clearly a space that can accommodate uh, many people. So so that's the one thing that that I consistently say use it as a frame for articulating how power is constituted, reinforced, and therefore when we want to interrupt power, we have to have an intersectional frame to see how it's actually working out. That's the point. But here's the funny thing, Alicia, what I've been seeing lately is straight white cisgender men using intersectionality to attack intersectionality. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Jesus. Well, at least the audacity is intact. The audacity, indeed. (laughs) You know, you know, so so it's like uh, Lindsey Graham and, you know, some of the bigger critics. What is their bill of particulars against intersectionality? They make a claim that it creates pariahs out of who? 
straight cisgender white men. So they're making an intersectional move. They're not against intersectionality. They're against what they perceive it does to them. And that's, that is, you know, what the politics of the critique uh, really are all about. Well, don't have me spill this tea on Lindsey Graham, child, because um, I, <laughs> I, I, come on with it. <laughs> you know, um, if there was ever a way mm-hmm. to use mm-hmm. intersectionality to describe yeah. how power is mapped, Lindsay would be a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful case study. And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things that Lady just ain't going to do this week. Number one. Not act like the Rona is a real ass thing. In the news this week, we learned that Rudy Giuliani is not only farting all over the place, but this heifer now has the Rona and he is taking up a hospital bed somewhere in New York City. Here's the gag, though. All these people who don't believe the Rona is real never quite get around to refusing hospital care for it. Unfucking believable, but also not. Super spreading ass Giuliani was just at it last week, spreading the Rona all over the place while also spreading conspiracy theories about rigged elections. Cha! There's not enough time in the world for all this, but what I can say is this how far they fall. I would have put this in my lady love section, but lady don't wish harm on anybody. I will, however, say a big fuck you on behalf of my cousin, who is an ER doctor. Fuck you for putting so many people in harm's way. Next thing that lady don't love this week. Well, we hear that Paris is burning, child. People are protesting about violence and a new security law that would essentially curtail civil liberties. Music producer Michelle Zeckler was beaten by police in November, sparking protests after a video circulated online, and it exposed the beating. But the icing on the cake was the announcement of a new security law that would increase surveillance and prevent the circulation of images of police officers online. Now, One thing that Lady knows about the EU is that people do not play. So we will keep you updated as things progress, but solidarity to the protesters. Next thing that Lady just ain't going to do this week. I mean, in Florida, police raided the home of a former coronavirus data scientist this week as a part of a feud that's going on between the state government and a data expert who has accused the state of covering up just how serious this pandemic actually is. Rebecca Jones was fired in May, and she is accused of accessing the state systems to send a message to state employees, urging them to speak out about the deaths from coronavirus in the state. Now, Jones denies these allegations. But look, y'all, I'm not one for conspiracy theories. You know this about me. But we already know that way too many of these leaders have denied the seriousness of the Rona all the way up to the president of the United States, 
I mean, he then ended up getting the Rona, which is a whole other story, child, in and of itself. But the thing that caught Lady's eye with this story is that the police busted up in this woman's home, scaring the hell out of her, her husband, and her child. And this move was clearly intended to intimidate her into silence. Now, Lady don't like no Gestapo-like tactics, especially when it comes to telling the truth about the issues impacting our lives and, frankly, the things that are killing us. Intimidation of whistleblowers is fascism. And frankly, Lady thinks that if Jones did send that message, good for her. And one thing Lady knows for sure is that when the police start busting up in white folks' house and white folks don't stand down, well, my friends, that means game on. Other things that we do want more of this week, though. Number one, Real Housewives franchise. Okay, so this week we were blessed, 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 child, with the return of the GOAT, Real Housewives of Atlanta. You really don't know how much you miss something until it's gone. And baby, yes, I am so glad it's back. Portia done got amped up on the protest bug, child. And all throughout this episode, it is Black Lives Matter everything. When Portia joins Until Freedom, which is a new group that was started by Tamika Mallory in protesting for Breonna Taylor. She seems to get politicized when she was tear gassed. That's right. Portia Williams child was tear gassed earlier in the summer during a peaceful protest in Atlanta. Now, yes, yes, yes. I do know that her grandfather was the legendary Josiah Williams. But child, let's be honest. I mean, sis thought that the Underground Railroad was an actual train. Just goes to show you that you don't get politics through osmosis. <laughs> Anyhow, shout out to Portia Child for taking us to church this past Sunday. Keep going, sis, because we cheering you on. <laughs> Other things that Lady just loves this week. A black woman being appointed to the U.S. Senate. Now, Here's what I know. Out of 100 members of the U.S. Senate, only 26 are women. 26. Of those 26 women, guess how many women of color? Guess. Four. And of those four women of color, how many do you think are black women? <laughs> one, child. Well, now none, because that one has been elected vice president of the United States. So... Word out on the street is that Governor Gavin Newsom is about to appoint Alex Padilla, the current Secretary of State. Now, no shade to Alex Child, but not if women have anything to say about it. Look, every single woman in America knows what it's like to be passed over for a job that you're qualified for. And every woman in America is tired of not having anyone who experiences life the way that we do making the rules about our lives. So Lady loves that women are coming together to push for a black woman for this seat. That's what's up. Head on over to Black to the Future Action Fund to learn about how you can weigh in on this very, very critical issue.
child, we have to wrap up. And I'm I'm upset about it because <laughs> we just actually though, I'm not. Because for those of you who are listening, you just got a tidbit and a snippet of the kiki that happens <laughs> between these two women. And um, it's not all for you. So this is what was for you. And I want to thank you for tuning in. Kim, you know, we got to have our kiki because... Absolutely. It's building up. It's building up. But as we transition out, please tell our listeners how they can connect with you on the socials and how they can follow what you're up to. Sure. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at Sandy Locks. You can follow AA Policy Forum on Twitter and Instagram. And it's Kimberly Crenshaw on Instagram. And uh, check out our webinars under the black light. Um, we have 21 episodes now, so uh, beginning in March, starting with um, COVID and extending to just last week when we talked about the Truth Be Told campaign. So you can see you can see the YouTube version of it or you can check out the podcast the next week. But check them out. We bring great people like Ms. Alicia Garza on the show to talk about what needs to be talked about, what people need to understand better to continue to do the work of trying to survive and thrive in a society that wasn't made for us to do either of those things. Come on and tell the truth. And definitely check out Kim's Intersectionality Matters podcast. I love you so much. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. You were amazing. And that's it for Lady Don't Take No. But I'll be here every single Friday morning to accompany you where you used to have a commute. We appreciate you joining us and let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like and tell us what you ain't going to take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Facebook at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about the things you hear about on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is Bilaterics. This pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, the Rona is a real ass thing. So protect yourself before you wreck yourself like Rudy. (laughs) The best way to fight against fascism is to stand up to it like Rebecca Jones did. Get yourself politicized and involved. Because look, if Portia can, so can you. (laughs) And head on over to the Black to the Future Action Fund to make sure that the rules being made about you aren't happening without you. That's right. I said it. Because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit. Insist don't respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. If she won't speak, less of something worse. Singing don't play. The girl take herself so serious. People stare curious. Got a natural way. Her hips sway furious. Never luxurious. Love y'all.